Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. With the election less than three weeks away, today's show is all politics. Later in the show, we have a report on some crucial House races in Arizona, ground zero for Trump's anti-immigrant campaign. Sasha Abramsky will report on what's going on with Democrats there and with the Republicans, too. Also, Democrats must retake a lot of the governorships that Republicans won with Trump's victory in 2016 and earlier if the Democrats are going to get set for the redistricting that comes in two years. And one of the most historic challenges to the Republicans is in Georgia, where Stacey Abrams is campaigning to become the state's first black governor and first female governor. The polls have her pretty much tied with her opponent. He's a far-right figure endorsed by Trump. Joan Walsh just got back from Georgia with our report. But first, the Democratic Party is weaker today than it's been in 75 years. Republicans, you may have heard, control both houses of Congress, the White House, and the Supreme Court, all three branches of government, which were supposed to check and balance each other. In addition, there are 33 Republican governors and only 18 governors who are Democrats. Just 10 years ago, the Democrats held supermajority in the Senate, control of the House, and of course held the White House. What happened? And more important, what can be done to chart a new course? The problems go deeper than Hillary's campaign. Obama holds a lot of the responsibility. Now a team of progressives has published a report in The Nation on the party's current attempts to recover. For that, we turn to Jeff Cohen. He's one of the authors of that report. He's the founder of the media watchdog group FAIR and co-founder of RootsAction.org. He was also the founding director of the Park Center for Independent Media at Ithaca College and author of the book Cable News Confidential, My Misadventures in Corporate Media. He's been a TV commentator on CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. He's written for USA Today, The Washington Post, The LA Times, and The Nation. Jeff Cohen, welcome to the program. Great to be with you. So what did the Democratic Party conclude about its failures in 2016? What was their analysis of what they needed to do to recover? Uh, I wish there was an analysis. I mean, the reason that a bunch of us progressive researchers and writers 
wrote the first democratic autopsy, which people can find at democraticautopsy.org. We did it a year after the calamitous defeat of Hillary Clinton by Donald Trump. And the reason we did that first autopsy was because the Democratic Party leadership refused to do it. I mean, normally when there's a disaster, like a train disaster, inspectors flock to the scene, they write up a report, they do a lot of research to make sure that they avoid uh, duplicating that disaster. But when we saw that the Democratic Party leadership was refusing to analyze uh, or do an autopsy on what had happened in November 2016, that's when we did it a year later. And, I mean, the Democratic leadership was happy to complain that, well, Russia was the cause of the defeat, or Comey's intervention 11 days uh, before. Well, you know, those might have been small factors, but there were all these factors within the control of the Democratic Party. And that's what we've attempted to analyze in that first report a year ago, and then the update that we wrote that was in The Nation this week. Maybe we should pause here for a fundamental question. What exactly is the Democratic Party? Who runs it? Who decides? Yeah. Well, that's, that's the problem. I mean, the good news is that the progressive base of the party is taking action. The Democratic base I think, was galvanized by Hillary Clinton's defeat. They were even galvanized a few months earlier when they felt that the Democratic Party leadership had rigged the primary process against Bernie Sanders on behalf of Hillary Clinton. Uh, so the, the progressive base of the party are people that come out of social movements, and they decided that, you know, we've got to do something because the leadership is incompetent, is corporately muzzled. So that, that's the good news, that the base is active. But when you talk about the Democratic Party, John, you, of course, have to talk about the leadership. And that's the problem, that the leadership owes more uh, allegiance, it seems, to the corporate donor class than they do to the U.S. working class and middle class and poor. Uh, you know, in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, the Democratic Party was the party of the working class, multiracial working class uh, outside of the Deep South. And uh, since Bill Clinton became president, the leadership of the party has been very much representing the corporate class or a big sector of the corporate class. What the report in The Nation this week, and thenation.com, and what people can find on democraticautopsy.org, is basically arguing that the base has got to become the party. That if the democratic, if the progressive base, the people that are schooled in social movements, the people that are winning elections from New York City, where Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won, to where I am today in Detroit, where Rashida Tlaib uh, won, out to Minnesota, uh, Ilhan Omar, all these young women of color who come out of social movements are going to Congress in January of next year. And that's the key that people in the base have taken power, but the corporate leadership of the Democratic Party fights tenaciously to keep power. And for us in Democratic Autopsy, you know, the quote that I will never forget, I have never forgotten it since I first heard it, shows why the Schumers and the Pelosi's and the leadership are completely out of touch. A few months before 
the November 2016 election. This is what Chuck Schumer said, when, you know, now the leading senator for the Democrats. He said this, For every blue-collar Democrat we lose in western Pennsylvania, we will pick up two moderate Republicans in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Yeah. And you can repeat that in Ohio and Illinois and Wisconsin, unquote. Wow. Famous Famous words, basically showing what's happened at the leadership level that they orient to this mythical moderate Republican, the so-called persuadables, while ignoring their base and not mobilizing the base, which is black people, Latinos, young people. Well, let's talk about some of the key areas in which we think the Democratic Party needs to chart a new course and which are highlighted in your report. I'm especially interested in voter participation. Two years ago, Hillary got 63 million votes. Now, that was 3 million votes more than Trump got. But Obama got 6 million more votes the first time he ran, 3 million more votes uh, the second time he ran than Hillary got in 2016. So the Democrats have been losing voters over the last decade, millions of voters. How do you understand uh, what happened and what is your prescription for what they need to do to reverse course? Well, it's a good question. In the early, in the first uh, Democratic autopsy, a year after the November 2016 disaster, we really took them to task for those numbers. And we pointed out that there's two problems. One is the Democratic Party policy, and the other is Democratic Party operations. And Democratic Party policy, you have to enthuse your base. The base has to understand that the policies you're putting forward are going to really change their lives. And we know from the Bernie Sanders primary campaign what policies are so popular and will make the voting base of the Democratic Party enthusiastic. And that's free public college education, which you can uh, pay for by taxing you know, the Wall Street transaction tax. It's Medicare for all, enhanced Medicare for all. It's raising the minimum wage. It's the government providing jobs, green jobs that can help deal with climate change. And by the way, these things are popular. The polling shows not just in the Democratic Party base. Medicare for all recently polled a majority of Republicans supported it. Wow. So these things are very 51 percent. It was a Reuters poll. So there's these things are very popular. So if you change the policy, you can have better voter participation. And you, the reason the Democratic leadership doesn't have these popular policies is because they're hemmed in by their corporate donations. They're afraid to take these positions. So you have Pelosi recently uh, putting out a statement that, well, we're going to make community colleges subsidized. You know, so it's this like these technocratic half measures from a 1990s era playbook that don't create enthusiasm. That's the policy problem. The second problem is Democratic Party operations. The problem is that the Democratic Party often has a lot of money and it spends that money on rich white consultants and very expensive ads that are aimed at persuadables tens of millions of dollars are spent in statewide campaigns or national campaigns and if a small fraction of that money was instead spent on 
mobilizing your base, mobilizing poor voters, black voters, Latino voters, young voters. That's where the money should go. You have a policy agenda that will uh, make those voters enthusiastic, and then you invest in getting them to the polls instead of what Chuck Schumer was prescribing before the disaster of November 2016. Oh, we've got to go pick up the moderate Republicans. And by the way, these consultants for the Democratic Party that have lost so many winnable elections, they get paid based on how many ads they run. They get a percentage of the ad buys. So it's, it's very lucrative for them, win or lose. But uh, if Democratic Party operations were more aimed, as you say, at voter participation, at mobilizing the base, that would be money better spent, and it's, it's, uh, it's money that's cheaper. Any uh, concluding thoughts on the Democratic Party today? When you are hemmed in by your corporate donors, it allows someone like Donald Trump to pose as the populist. And when you think back on the eight years of Bill Clinton in the White House and the eight years of Obama, and I've done this with, uh, where I'm speaking to roomfuls of activists, I say name one corporation that Clinton or President Obama polarized with for exporting jobs, good union, middle-class jobs in our country, and allowing them to go to cheap labor countries or countries where they don't allow labor unions. And there wasn't. It never happened. And if you have that kind of policy where you're so uh, afraid of taking on corporations, even those that are acting so irresponsibly with regard to working class people of all colors, then it allows a, a charlatan like Trump to come forward in those key states of Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And he's the guy who's going to undo NAFTA. And, and replace NAFTA with something better. And he's the one who's going to fight for their jobs. And it's that, uh, that the power that the corporate class or a section of the corporate class in our country has over the Democratic Party leadership that has allowed the uh, Trumps and in other states, different people uh, for the Republicans to pose as the defender of the working class. And, and I think that's got to change. That's got to stop. Jeff Cohen is co-author of The Democratic Autopsy One Year Later, a report at thenation.com. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. Now it's time to talk about Arizona. Arizona is a red state. Trump carried Arizona 49 to 45 percent. It's currently nine points more Republican than the national average. But change is coming to Arizona. Republican Senator Jeff Flake is not running for re-election. Maybe you remember he criticized Trump quite a bit during the past year, although he voted with him nearly all the time. Right now, it looks like that open Senate seat will be won by a Democrat, Kristen Sinema. The polling experts say the odds of her winning are about two out of three. Today, we're especially interested in the House, where big changes also seem to be underway in Arizona. In Tucson and the desert southeast of there lies the second congressional district. Last time around, the Republican candidate there got 57%. That was Martha McSally. 
But this year she decided to run for the Senate, and she's the one who seems likely to lose to Kristen Sinema. So there's an open seat, and all the odds makers and experts say the Democrat is very likely to win it. Her name is Ann Kirkpatrick. For comment and analysis, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He's been reporting from Arizona for The Nation. Sasha, welcome back. Thank you, John. Will you open your report for The Nation with a count of what it was like when you went to a meeting of Republican precinct captains in a place called Cochise County? Tell us about that. Yeah, so the the district is a geographically huge district. It's um, almost as big as the state of New Jersey. But outside of Tucson, and the district um, is in the eastern half of Tucson, outside of Tucson, it's very remote. And it's a few very small towns and a lot of desert and a lot of ranching communities. So I went to um, the precinct captain's meeting in one of the small towns. And it was maybe 40 or 50 people, and they were in the back room of a local bar. And the conversation was about what the political odds were of winning and how they were going to win and so on and so forth, and what the political issues were that they cared about. And as you'd expect, the issues they cared about were the border, illegal immigration, drugs, all the things that Trump and the administration have been pushing, all the fear buttons about out-of-control crime, out-of-control immigration, and so on. Um, And what struck me about that meeting was how predictable it was that it was full of elderly people. It was racially virtually homogenous. It was almost exclusively white. And it was almost exclusively driven by a sense of fear. And then you went to a meeting of Democratic precinct captains in Tucson. Well, these weren't precinct captains. It was just a big political gathering actually sponsored by Raul Grijalva, who is a very progressive congressman from the neighboring district. And he represents much of Tucson, and he's been a sort of powerhouse in progressive democratic politics for several decades now. And he co-chairs the Progressive Caucus in Washington, D.C. And Grijalva's event was just boisterous. It was young, it was multi-ethnic, it was full of energy, and it was also full of a sense of change. And you, you can these things can sometimes be overblown. Sometimes a very sort of small, low-key meeting like the Republican one hides the fact that there's a lot of dynamism under the surface. And sometimes a big boisterous meeting like the one in Tucson hides the fact there's you know not so much beneath the surface. But in this instance, I think what we're seeing is that a lot of political energy in Arizona is flowing to the Democrats. And so you mentioned in the opening that this is a state that you know, has long been a Republican stronghold. And that's true. But it's also a state that in the last 10 years or so has increasingly become a purple state, a battleground state. And that's largely because the demographics are changing. Um, In the same way as California in the 1990s, it had Prop 187, it had this very anti-immigrant moment. And then afterwards, it had this tremendous political empowerment of traditionally disenfranchised communities. And I think the same thing's going on in Arizona. It's had this vast anti-immigration moment. It's got some of the most strict anti-immigration rules in the country. It tolerated Joe Arpaio's excesses for years and years. But now there's a critical number of people in Arizona who are coming of age refusing to accept that that is their norm. 
and it's changing the politics of the state in really interesting ways. Let's talk for a minute about the Democratic candidate there in Tucson and southeast of Tucson who is likely to win, Ann Kirkpatrick. What are her politics? Well, what was interesting in the primaries, both parties had multiple candidates, and both parties had candidates from the political edges who for a while looked like they were going to surge. And in the end, what happened was, in the primaries, it was the centrist candidates or the more centrist candidates who prevailed. So in the Democrats' case, it's a woman called Anne Kirkpatrick. She grew up, I believe, on a native reservation. She has been a congresswoman in the past for a northern district in Arizona, and she's lived in and out of Tucson her whole life. So she's come back to the Tucson area now. She's campaigning for this open seat. The Republicans ended up in a contest between a fairly centrist businesswoman, um, the head of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in Tucson, and a very extremist constitutional conservative, I believe he termed himself. And in that primary, it was Leah Marquez Peterson, the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce head, who emerged triumphant. So you have this election between a fairly centrist Democrat and a Republican who embraces Donald Trump's policies but is less crazy and less extreme than it could have been. And so I think one of the things that's happening is you've got a lot of voters in the more rural parts of this district who are looking at this congressional race, and they're thinking, all right, we've got two fairly moderate political figures, but we really don't like what Donald Trump's doing. And as we all know, a large part of this election is a referendum on Donald Trump. And I think that we're seeing that in Congressional District 2 in Arizona, that one of the reasons there's room to flip this district is that there's a moderate centrist Democrat who is really able to take advantage of voter discomfort at what's going on in the Trump administration. One of the biggest events in Arizona politics of the last year was the surprising, to many of us at least, mobilization of the teachers around a campaign they called Red for Ed, uh, I understand Red for Ed is not a communist campaign. <laughs> Red for Ed is a group of ordinary teachers who are fed up with low wages and bad working conditions. And we, we've seen very similar movements in Kentucky, in Oklahoma, in West Virginia, in a series of states around the country where unions are very weak and where working conditions for teachers have been pretty bad, that in the last year or two, there have been teacher walkouts and mass movements to better fund education. And one of the really interesting things in those states is they've acquired tremendous momentum because they built popular support. And so in Arizona, which is very anti-union, where teachers are paid very low wages, you've got teachers basically walking the precincts, talking with people, knocking on doors, organizing, doing all the things that union organizers and labor workers did 100 years ago. And they're engaging the community in their fight. And this has become one of the big issues in the election campaign because you've got a Republican Party in Arizona that's so locked into the anti-tax mantra that it's just absolutely impossible with Republicans controlling state government for anything to happen to better fund the education system. 
let's talk about Bisbee. That's an isolated town in Arizona, site of a former gigantic copper mine, which was legendary in labor history circles for a strike in 1917 after Phelps Dodge won that strike. They note famously rounded up 1,300 strikers, loaded them onto cattle cars, and dumped them out 200 miles east in the New Mexico desert. You went to Bisbee. I know the Phelps Dodge mine is closed now. What's it like there today politically? You know, it's a fascinating place. I went to Bisbee because Cochise County has two really iconic towns um, amidst this huge desert terrain, and one of them is Tombstone, the... um, legendary center of the OK Corral, the shootout of the OK Corral. And the other one is Bisbee. And as you said, Bisbee has this phenomenal labor history. It's this beautiful town just a few miles from the Mexico border. And it's got now a defunct, huge copper mine. And so you go to Bisbee, and on the southern edge of town, there's this copper mine, which is about 900 feet deep, I believe. It's absolutely enormous. looks like a crater from a meteor. And the town itself, when the mining jobs left in the 1970s and 80s, the town itself sort of shrank, and then it reinvented itself, and it reinvented itself as a sort of art colony. So when you go there, it's got this very intact old downtown with these old historic buildings, and it's got these lovely inns and hotels and restaurants. And then it's got probably dozens of art galleries and boutiques and jewelry stores, and it's just this fascinating place culturally. And one of the sort of interesting things about Bisbee is it's a fascinating place politically. So it's surrounded by these very conservative red communities, these ranching towns, these old mining towns and so on. Um, There's a big military fort nearby, Fort Huachaca, and all of those are reliably Republican. And then you've got Bisbee, which has about 5,000 people. And is sort of a Berkeley of rural Arizona. Its, mm. its politics are very left. It's it adopted a gay rights ordinance very early on. Um, it's very environmental. Um, if anything, it's you know to the left, quite a bit to the left of the Democratic Party. And I met the mayor there, and the mayor there called himself a recovering Republican. And he uh. said, "Look, I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me." And then he talked about the rise of the Tea Party and the rise of a sort of very intolerant politics that he was very uncomfortable with. Um, And, you know, it's it's a really interesting story because in the calculations for how you get a majority in Cachise County, you've got the big epicenter of Tucson, but then you've got all these small communities, a few thousand here, a few thousand there, and you have to be able to create the numbers. And so if you can get three or 4,000 votes in Bisbee in the surrounding area, that's a huge part of the tally for any Democrat who's hoping to win in CD2 in Arizona. Any closing thoughts about what's coming in Arizona? It seems like they're going to flip both a Senate seat and at least one House seat. What, what makes for Democratic success in Arizona this year? You know, Arizona is demographically changing It's not changing as fast as California changed, but it's heading in that same direction. It's becoming a polyglot society, and the electorate is becoming polyglot. You know, one of the lessons that the Republicans will probably have to learn in the coming years is that as states like Arizona become more diverse, 
the kind of ethno-nationalist politics that Trump has been pushing the Republican Party towards, it might win in the short term, but in the long term, it's very hard to imagine how the Republicans create electoral majorities that deliberately exclude and demean and diminish large parts of the electorate. Sasha Abramsky reported from Arizona for The Nation. You can read his report at thenation.com. Thank you, Sasha. Always great to have you on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks again. Support for Start Making Sense comes from Swing Left. We've said it here many times. It all starts with the House. If progressive candidates win in just 23 swing districts on November 6th, we can take back a majority in the House of Representatives and finally put a check on Donald Trump and the people in power who are supporting him. That's why nearly half a million people have signed up to volunteer with Swing Left. When you join Swing Left at swingleft.org backslash sense, you'll be connected immediately with other volunteers in your area who are working to win the races in a nearby swing district. You'll find out where and how you can make the most impact. We can flip the house. It's really that simple. Each of us has the power to change our country and save our democracy, but only if we do the work to take back the house. So don't just vote this year. Volunteer. Join the grassroots movement that's changing things in this year's midterm elections. Sign up now at swingleft.org backslash sense. That's S-E-N-S-E. One of the most historic electoral challenges this year is in Georgia, where Democrat Stacey Abrams is campaigning to become the state's first black governor and first female governor. The polls have her tied with her opponent. Uh, He's a white guy, a far right wing figure endorsed by Trump. Joan Walsh just got back from Georgia. She's the nation's national affairs correspondent and a CNN political analyst. She's also author of the book, What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We reached her today in our nation's capital. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Tell us about who Stacey Abrams is. Her biography is pretty impressive. She is truly amazing. Uh, She grew up uh, in Gulfport, Mississippi, uh, genteel poor, she likes to put it. Uh, They watched PBS and they had books in the house. She was her high school valedictorian. She went to Spelman, uh, University of Texas, uh, Yale Law School, and is also a romance novelist, an award-winning romance novelist, I might add. She makes all of us feel like slackers. But but most importantly, she has been an advocate for voter empowerment and mobilization for a long time. She was elected to the state assembly back in 2006 in a period when things began to really get horrible for Georgia Democrats. Republicans took over. A lot of white Democrats became Republican. Um, And she has the interesting thing that people don't know about her as they look at this race is that since she joined the assembly, she actually became assembly, the minority leader, because they never had a majority. She was the speaker. She has worked to build back the Georgia Democratic Party. So 
not only has she worked to register new voters and mobilize a new voting bloc, uh, mainly younger African-American voters, rural voters, rural black voters who are so often left behind. As a party leader, she also helped elect folks in the Assembly and the State Senate, folks at the local level. She's been really instrumental in helping build back the Georgia Democratic Party. You've seen her in action at rallies, big and small. What are what are those events like? One really remarkable to me thing about her is that she really doesn't vary her message a whole lot from group to group. She tells every audience one striking fact that Georgia is losing $8 million a day by not expanding Medicaid. Uh, and, and that wows business crowds as, as well as, you know, low-income rural black women in a church uh, where, that I visited with her. She's, she's a very electrifying speaker, but she's also uh, very warm in person. She's very, very down home. One of my favorite things in your report for The Nation is you not only describe rallies for Stacey Abrams, you report having lunch in Savannah at a place called the Old Pink House with an older white suburban guy. What did he tell you about the Republicans? Well, he, he told me more about Brian Kemp. I mean, Brian Kemp, first of all, is now Georgia's Secretary of State, and he has presided over years of voter disenfranchisement. Uh, and we could, we could talk more about that. He's also turned himself into a right-wing caricature. During the primary, the Republican primary, there was an ad where he held a shotgun to the head of a young man he said was interested in dating his daughter. He had another ad where he sat in his pickup truck and said he has a big pickup truck so he can go around and capture illegals and take them back to where they belong. He really played the, the, the race and immigration and fear card. And this uh, older white Savannah retiree who voted for Trump will, will not vote for Brian Kemp. He calls him, literally calls him an idiot. And he is sad about his, his vote for Trump and disgusted by Trump. And he feels like his party has become Trumpified. And, and so he's voting for Stacey Abrams to give his party a kick. Uh, and I don't know how many men like him are out there. Uh, that's, that's not her core demographic, but she's counting on, on getting some of them because Kemp really is very extreme for Georgia. He's running, for example, he wants to pass, uh, he wants Georgia to pass a Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And, and the legislature did pass one. And the current Republican governor, very conservative, uh, Nathan Deal, he vetoed it because Georgia is very proud of its business climate, of, of the businesses it, it, it currently hosts, like Delta and Coca-Cola. Uh, it's, it's in the running for uh, this big Amazon building uh, complex that so many cities are fighting for. It's uh, second only to California in uh, attracting film business. It's, you know, a lot of, of businessmen, like the man I spoke to uh, and others, are very concerned that Kemp is, is, too, is too conservative, uh, too far right for, for Georgia business, that he will be bad for Georgia business. And so that creates an opening for Stacey Abrams as well. And this 
gentleman you spoke to at the old pink house in Savannah, what did he tell you about Stacey Abrams? Well, he kind of surprised me in that the first thing he said when we sat down is, well, she's going to have a tough time getting elected being black. I appreciated his candor. Not everybody speaks with candor about race. Uh, But I appreciated the second thing he said even more. He said he was going to vote for her. And it was not as much a pro-Abrams vote, to be honest, as it was an anti-Brian Kemp vote. You write in The Nation that Georgia Democrats have a 200,000-vote problem. That doesn't sound good. It's not good. Uh, It's roughly the number uh, that Michelle Nunn, who was running for Senate in 2014, lost by. It's roughly the number that Jason Carter, running for governor in 2014, lost by. It's the number that Hillary Clinton lost to Donald Trump by. But the reason that Stacey Abrams says it with a, a somewhat optimistic cast is that she's banked on mobilize registering but also mobilizing a lot of voters who stay home roughly a million uh eligible georgians uh, tend not to vote and they really tend to sit out the midterms so she's had a strategy for turning out uh they're they're now called there's a term for them low propensity voters uh folks who who skip the midterms though they might vote in presidential elections folks who maybe voted for Barack Obama one or two times. And then also looking at independence and what they call white persuadables. This universe of persuadables, though, John, is, is fairly small. I mean, the polls that I've seen are showing, you know, somewhere between as, as, as few as 3%, as much as 10% of voters are undecided. But she she is hoping for for some portion of the white vote. And, you know, polling is showing she needs between 22 and and 28% of the white vote. And she seems to be in polling getting something closer to the 28% side, which I know is pathetic, but I think Hillary Clinton got 23%. So if Abrams can bump that up into the high 20s or even crack 30, she can be the next governor. We need to talk about voter suppression in Georgia. There was an alarming report uh, from the Associated Press, the AP, a couple of days ago. Tell us about that. They did an expose that found that, again, Brian Kemp, Secretary of State, is in charge of the elections, and his office has been sitting on 53,000 new voter registration applications. Uh, and the reason is they, in Georgia, they use a system called exact match. And that means if there's anything out of, out of whack about your, uh, your form, if you, maybe you're in, uh, maybe your driver's license has a hyphen in your last name, but you don't use a hyphen, uh, on your voter registration, uh, if, if there's an address difference, you've got street, but they think it's road, they tend to throw those those applications out. It turns out that 70% of these 53,000 uh, applications are from African-American voters. Uh, and Brian Camp actually has the audacity to blame, essentially blame Stacey Abrams, because a group that she started in 2013, the New Georgia Project, 
apparently uh, filled out or helped fill out a lot of these forms. So he's claiming that they submitted sloppy paperwork and he's doing, he's only doing the right thing. Now, the courts have ruled that exact match is discriminatory uh, and, and a voter suppression technique, but the Georgia legislature came around and codified it. And so, you know, it, that might not stand, but so far he's saying he's in the right using uh, exact match because uh, the, the legislature stands behind him. The, there, there are law, lawsuits galore. And in the meantime, if anybody in Georgia is listening and has any concern, you, there are websites you can use. You go to StaceyAbrams.com. You can find a way to check your registration. And if you fall into this category of your registration is pending, you can vote provisionally. And I, I think a lot of Democratic groups and activist groups are trying to help these people make sure they know they can vote, make sure they vote provisionally if, if they can't vote normally, uh, and then make sure that those provisional ballots are counted. In Georgia, as in many other Republican states, it comes down to a battle between vote suppression and turnout. The Republicans put their energy into vote suppression. The Democrats put their energy into voter turnout. What does Stacey Abrams's turnout operation look like? Well, Georgia has never seen anything like it. They've got 15 field offices and 150 uh, full-time staffers, thousands of volunteers, and they really have boots on the ground. In, In the past, uh, Democrats tended to spend more on advertising. She's got a decent ad budget, but she's really staked this on field. The other thing she has going for her uh, is something that you and I have talked about, the potential for reverse coattails. We saw a little bit of that in Virginia last year when there were so many first-time candidates on the ballot, most of them women, and so many won. And they 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 helped buoy the statewide candidates because they turned out voters even in red counties. And and I think Stacey Abrams has that going for her too. There's an unprecedented number of women on the ballot. There's an unprecedented number of Democrats, period. I, I went into red counties where people said there used to be no Democrats competing. They just stopped they stopped running for county supervisor, for community college board, for state assembly or senate, and and they've got full ballots uh, in some of these counties, full Democratic slates in some of these counties. So, you know, you can't win if you don't play. And even if some of these first-time candidates lose, they are they have operations on the ground. They have people going out and identifying Democrats and and bringing them along to vote for the top of the ticket as well as them. So there's a lot going on. It's going to be tough. I, you know, I really don't want to make any predictions. All the polls show it deadlocked within the margin of error, but she absolutely can win and she has a plan to win. Joan Walsh, she reported from Georgia for The Nation. You can read her new piece, The Future of Georgia, at thenation.com. Joan, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. I enjoyed it. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton, 
Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.